Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Good evening. Um, I told Caleb we would do music tonight based on how many questions came in. Well, there's there's a lot of questions, and so we're going to just spend the whole hour going through them. Um, As we begin, Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea, and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I think it's um, John is um, symbolically being told about Scripture, that, that you um, are to consume Scripture, and when you do, it is sweet to the taste, but sometimes it's bitter to your stomach. Sometimes it doesn't go down the best way. Um, and, and I tell you that because um, you submitted some really good questions for tonight, really good questions. But several of the questions require a, a, a very hard stomach to digest. Um, but if God's word never sets uneasy with you, that's a probably a sign you're reading it wrong. God's word will challenge how you view things. God's word will make you wrestle with hard truths. So as we go into tonight, we commit to two things. First of all, humility. Humility. We will submit to what God's word says, even if we don't like it. Even if it is different than what we've always understood to be true. And secondly, love. Several of tonight's questions are controversial. And so when there's controversial matters, there's often a lot of opinions about that. Let's agree to love one another if we disagree on those things. One question for certain tonight, and I'm sure you're going to disagree with me on, as well as maybe some others, but I'm trying to best say what I believe Scripture says in response to these questions. Um, So let's pray together to get started. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it is applicable to all of life. And Lord, I I, I thank you that um, it didn't stop being applicable when it was finished in 90 AD. Lord, but it continues to, to be able to be applied to modern situations and modern questions. And so, Lord, I pray that we would trust in your word, and I pray that we'd listen to what it says. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, sharpen our hearts, sharpen our minds to believe the things that you have put in your word and to trust those things, even if they're hard to stomach. Um, Lord, give us joy in the answer to these questions, because even the controversial ones, the answer to them is joyous once you work through the controversy. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there are 11 questions. Um, I hope to finish them all tonight, but I may not. If I don't, then after we dedicate the shoeboxes next week, I will finish them then. Um, I'm going to answer until 7 o'clock, and if there's only a couple left at that point, I'm just going to finish them, but I'm going to go until 7 o'clock. Chris, I didn't actually turn this TV on back here, so could you come out and do that just so I can see what's up there um, so I don't have to come back and and look around? Um, And so let's get going. Question number one. That is not question number one. There we go. Question number one. What is Mark 13.32 referring to? So Mark 13.32 um, is actually that same passage we looked at this morning in Matthew, just in Mark's perspective. And actually, the Mark 13 is, is in the passage we're going to look at next week as we look at the second coming of Jesus. And so Mark 13.32 Um, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, 
not even, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Um, I'm going to assume that the person who submitted this question, what they mean by that. Um, I think you know that this verse refers to the second coming of Jesus, so I'm going to guess you mean, does this verse refer to the rapture or the second coming? The thing that the Son of Man does not know the day or the hour to, is that referring to the rapture or the second coming? Um, so the common view um, in the United States, especially this area of the country, is that in the end, at the end of history, the rapture happens, Jesus takes the church off the earth, and then there's a seven-year period called the tribulation. At the conclusion of that seven-year tribulation, Jesus comes a second time, a third time, technically, in, in this understanding of things, and, and he um, brings an end to history at that point. This is the view of the Left Behind series. It's the view of a lot of popular preachers today. Um, and so it's going to determine how we answer this question based on where we fall on that theological discussion. Um, that is actually not the position I hold to. As, as I understand scripture. I hope you can still love me if you don't agree with that. Um, some churches consider you a heretic if you don't believe the rapture happens before the second coming. Um, some people are very passionate about that specific doctrine. Um, I believe the rapture and the second coming are the same event. I think they're the same event. I believe there will come a day in the future when Jesus returns to defeat the devil and his minions, um, judge the living and the dead, and usher in the eternal kingdom. When that happens, he will call his church up into the clouds together, and they will come back to earth together. They will descend. That may not make any sense to you. Why does Jesus call them up in the clouds and then bring them back down? Um, but, but in the days of Scripture, in the days Jesus was on earth, that's exactly how a king would return back to his city. So the king would be off on a trip, and he would come back, and the people of that city would actually leave the city and go out and meet him on the way and usher him back in. Um, that, that's how I understand it, but as far as um, the reason that I understand it that way, um, the reason that I don't believe the rapture happens before the tribulation, um, it's kind of threefold. First of all, nobody in the world believed that before the 1800s in the U.S., and so typically if you can't trace an idea back to Jesus and the apostles or very close to it, uh, we should question it. Secondly, Scripture is full of stories of God's people not being pulled out of suffering, but having to um, trust God through the fiery furnace and through the flood. And then thirdly, the passages of Scripture that are used to say that it's before the tribulation just haven't convinced me. For example, Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Um, I, that, that's speaking specifically the, to the church in Philadelphia. That's not sp speaking to the entire church. And the trial coming on the whole earth to, to, to test the world in Revelation is not the tribulation, it's judgment day. It's judgment day. But what if I'm wrong? If I'm wrong and the rapture happens before the tribulation, I plan to participate, and I'm going to be happy to be wrong. All right, so, so as I told you this morning, there, uh, there's only so much certainty we can have about things that have not happened yet. Okay, there, there's only so much certainty we can have about things that have not happened yet. I know some of you think a lot about the rapture before the tribulation, and, 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 and that's great. I'm just simply trying to honestly read the Bible and see what it says. Christians are going to disagree on that. So therefore, Mark 13, 32 depends where you fall on that, on that spectrum. I believe Mark 13, 32 is speaking of the second coming of Jesus. Someone who believes the rapture happens before the tribulation believes it's the rapture. And so wherever you fall on that, that that's what that's referring to. Um, next Sunday, as I said, I'm preaching that, so we'll just get back to that when we get there. Um, next question. Who, other than Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, were there on earth to make so many people? Are you ready for this? Cain would have had to marry his sister. For the first few generations on earth, incest would not have been a sin because only, the only people to carry on the human race would have been you and your family members. That's weird for us to think about. I don't have a sister, but the thought of marrying a sister just doesn't feel right. Um, but it would be a normal reality for those people. That's why Kentucky is more like paradise than Georgia is, because there's no gnats and you marry your cousin. <laughs> and they probably didn't wear shoes. And so, um, that's all we got to do on that one. <laughs> um, 
Can people who commit suicide still go to heaven? Um, I answer this question with fear and trembling. When I was in high school, I spent a lot of time, um, it was early on when I was a Christian, I was online having discussions with people about faith on things like Facebook, on things like, I think I did it on MySpace when that was still a thing, um, just discussion forums, things like that. That's kind of the easiest way I found early on in my faith to dialogue with people about the faith. And I was arrogant, so I thought I knew the answer to every question. Um, one time a girl asked me this very question on, on one of those forums, and I answered yes, because people can still go to heaven if they commit suicide, if they were saved. And another guy was on that forum, he's, a, um, he's, he's this guy that I knew who he is, I, I told you about him sometime, I think I'm actually mentioning him in a couple weeks in one of my sermons, he's a guy that would come to my college campus and open air preach. Um, and he was on that forum, and he happened to see that, um, and he just railed on me that I was a false teacher, and according to the book of James, um, I'm going to go to hell for, for speaking that very thing to that girl. Um, this guy believed you could lose your salvation, so for him, of course, suicide sends you to hell because you aren't alive to repent of the sin after you commit it. This guy began to shame me for giving her that answer. He accused me of being a false teacher. And, and it planted a seed in my mind that, that I just had given this girl permission to go kill herself. It, it, it was a great, deep distress for me when this happened. It was that that actually began my departure from, I'm not going to spend time arguing with people on forums about the Christian faith. Um, I was met with the true gravity of what preaching and teaching is. That what I teach can greatly impact somebody's life for the better or for the worse, so take it very seriously. I won't know until eternity if that girl was genuinely just wondering the answer or if she was on the last leg about to take her own life. I don't know. As far as suicide goes in the Bible, there are very few examples of it in the Bible. There's a few minor characters that um, take their own lives, but there's only really two major ones that we see. Um, the first is King Saul, first king in Israel, the one before David. Um, he was wounded in battle. And he wasn't about to die at the hands of the enemy, so he fell on his own sword so that he didn't have to be shamed like that. Second was Judas Iscariot, obviously. Judas hangs himself out of regret for his betrayal of Jesus. The problem with these are the only examples we have in the Bible of suicide are the unredeemed. There are lost people that do it. If an unsaved person commits suicide, we can, we can know from Scripture they go to hell because no matter the, the fate of somebody who dies without Christ is hell regardless of how they died. But what if a Christian commits suicide? What if a Christian takes their own life? What if someone saved by Jesus, born again, takes their own life? Maybe you ask, why would a Christian ever do that? Aren't they supposed to be completely joyful and, 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 and just be happy? Well, the fact is the clouds can get dark. The clouds of life can get dark. The struggles of life can so take over a person that they see no way out, even if they know Jesus. We will not be perfectly free from sin and sadness until after Jesus comes. Until then, we struggle and fight on this earth. We do. David, if you read the book of Psalms, David says so many things in Psalms that you would look at and think, I think this guy's about to take his life. Like you read some of the things David says. How you answer this question will really be determined on whether or not you believe you can lose your salvation. I think scripture is clear that you cannot. You cannot lose your salvation. John 10, 27, 28, Jesus says, I give eternal life to my sheep. They know me and no one will pluck them out of my hand. Nothing will take them out of my hand. Ephesians 1, 14 says that when, when you're saved, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the, for the inheritance that is yours. You are sealed. It's guaranteed. You can't lose it. You didn't gain your salvation by something you did. You can't lose it because of something you did. Romans 8, I think, is the greatest chapter in the Bible. The final nine verses is just laying out, nothing can steal the love of Christ from you. Nothing. No death, no life, no angels, no demons, no height, no depth. Nothing can separate the love of Christ from you. Nothing can, no one can bring a charge against you if you belong to, Christ, to God through Christ. That includes suicide. That includes suicide. There's no exception. We don't get forgiveness of our sins by asking day by day, forgive me for where I've failed you. That if that were the case, if we died suddenly, we'd get to heaven and God would have to say, you know, 
you were real faithful to me, you did real great things, but you didn't, you didn't ask for forgiveness in your final day and you died suddenly, so I got to just send you on to hell. No, we live an active life of repentance, always battling our sins, but our sins were completely paid for on the cross by Jesus, completely. Past, present, future, all of it's paid. And that includes suicide. If a murderer can be forgiven of their sins, so can suicide, because suicide is self-murder. If a Christian commits suicide, do they go to heaven? Biblically, we can say yes. Biblically, we can say yes. And in that moment when they arrive, Jesus doesn't scold them and say, what's wrong with you, you fool? No, he says, hey, I'm so sorry for the pain you felt. And I knew you would go through this one day, so long before you were born, I paid for this sin. I love you, and you couldn't lose that, ever. I say that with fear and trembling. I say that to tell you what the Bible presents, not to give you permission to kill yourself. Okay, that, 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 that's the weight of this answer. If you're here in person or if you're on Facebook Live and you're struggling with considering taking your own life, please grab me after church tonight or, or contact us immediately. I'll stay up past midnight to help you with that. Let's get you some help. Next question. How do God's actions of election and man's free will coincide? I'm going to assume this question refers specifically to salvation as the word election is used. Um, election is the theological term relating to salvation. Providence is the general thing where God sovereignly governs everything that happens in the universe. Um, so let's talk specifically about this issue of election. Um, you may better know it by the term predestination. What does the Bible say about predestination? Maybe you're like I was in high school when you hear predestination. Um, I was taught in high school history class that there was a small movement of people in American history who believed in something called predestination. The way it was taught was God basically had every human being that would ever be born in a bag at the beginning of time. And he just kind of randomly, you know, reached in and grabbed one out and grabbed that one out and grabbed that one out. And that determined who gets saved one day. Like, that, that's how I was taught it. And I was taught that nobody outside this little group in American history believed such a thing, and that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. A, a lot of people in history from the first century to our modern day believe in predestination. That's not what it was. That's not what it is. The fact is, the Bible teaches two things that seem to contradict itself, election and free will. Or uh, the terms I might use are predestination and human responsibility. That God does things in his own sovereignty, and man has the freedom to make his own decisions. They seem to contradict why. Well, let's talk about that. Um, first of all, we see predestination taught in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, adoption always involves the parent choosing the child first, not the other way around. Um, my, my friends, Robbie and Erica, who went to get Peter this week, um, they chose to go adopt him. Peter didn't like search online to find potential parents. Um, so they started the action, but Peter had to be willing to be adopted, right? If Peter had ran away from the orphanage last year, he would not be adopted. He, he would have ran away. And so we see that, but then we see human responsibility, free will. Matthew 23, um, verse 37, we read it this morning. Jesus says it about Jerusalem. He says, um, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus says, look, I want to gather you people. I want to rescue you people. You don't want it, though. You, you don't want it. Or we know John 3.16, all who believe in him, whosoever believes will have eternal life. They will. Um, as far as the idea of election or predestination goes, we, we can't deny it's in the Bible. We just have to understand it properly. Um, Abraham was not a deacon at his church. He was a pagan in a pagan land. And of all the people on the earth, God chose Abraham to be the one who's going to bring blessing to the nations. Uh, Israel was not a Christian parachurch organization. They were a pathetic little people. And God chose them to show his love to and not the rest of the nations. Saul of Tarsus was not at a revival and when he responded to an altar call. No, God, Jesus showed up and kicked him off his horse and said, hey, go find Ananias in Jerusalem and, and wash your eyes out. Now, Saul had to go do that, 
but, but Jesus came after him. So the question is, how can it be possible for God to predestine people to salvation, yet we make a free choice to believe the gospel and be saved? How can both of those things work? Because they seem to contradict, don't they? It works like this. All of us are born predestined to hell. That, that's, the, that's the place that we are when we're born. That's the trajectory from the moment we come out of our mother's womb. We are hell-bent sinners running headlong to the gates of hell, and, and that's what we want. God did not predestine us to hell. We do that ourselves. However, before time began, according to Scripture, God chose that he would save some people off the trajectory toward hell. How did he choose those people? We don't know. We don't know. Some would say he looked down through the channels of history and, and found every person that would choose him, so he chose them. Uh, I don't think that works because 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. If he loved us in response to the fact that we would love him, we didn't love, he didn't love us first. We loved him first. All of that being said, it will never happen that a person who desires salvation cannot get it because they aren't chosen. That's not how it works. All people who come to Jesus wanting salvation will get it, and they prove they're among the chosen by that. So how did your salvation work with these two ideas, election and free will? Well, the fact is, you were a slave to sin, you were owned by your sin, and frankly, you loved your sin. At some point, you heard the gospel preached to you, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit opened up the prison door that you were trapped in on the other side and showed you the glories of Jesus and showed you how beautiful he is. 2 Corinthians 4 says he shined the light of the gospel into your heart, and the Holy Spirit said, come, have a better master. Come, leave your prison gate. Come, have a better master. And you made the free choice to come running out of the prison to a better master. God did not force you to come. He just showed you a more beautiful and more lovely master than the one you had before. And you realized by the Holy Spirit that you would have been foolish to not come. Now, that makes no logical sense that God could predestine to salvation and man could make the free choice to come to salvation. It seems to contradict. How can that be? Well, there's a lot of truths in Scripture that make no logical sense, aren't there? You ever tried to logically explain the Trinity? Uh, so God is one God and three persons. So, so is he one God who manifests himself as three different beings? No, that's an ancient heresy. Uh, is he three gods, but they're just all three God? No, that's a heresy. He's one God, three persons. Makes no sense. I don't understand it. Uh, what about the incarnation? Jesus, when he was here on earth, was fully God. He was fully man. So he's fully God in that he's holding the universe together by the word of his power. He's fully man in that he's a helpless baby in the cradle. He knows all things as fully God, yet he has to learn how to talk as fully man. Makes no sense at all. If you could logically understand everything about God, he wouldn't be a God greater than you, and you wouldn't worship him. You wouldn't. The, the doctrine that, that we're talking about here, it's often controversial for Christians, but it's meant to be comfort. It's meant to be comfort. If you're saved, God has put his seal on you. He's shown his love to you. Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people than the, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you. He loves you because he loves you. It's not because you were special, not because you were less evil than others, not because you deserved it, not because of anything. The Lord loves you because he loves you. If your salvation is based on his love, you have great comfort that he is never going to stop loving you ever because he is love. Next question. How many times should you forgive people or a person before enough is enough and you move on? How many times should you forgive a person? Every time. Every time. Jesus tells a parable about this, Matthew 18. Flip there. You can read the whole parable later. It's it's, it's kind of long, but we're going to read a couple verses from it. Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, 
but 77 times. Your translation may say 70 times 7. Peter says, do I have to forgive somebody seven times? He's, you know, he's been to you know, a couple synagogue classes, so he knows seven is an important Bible number. Maybe Jesus would be impressed. And Jesus says, no, you've got you to do it 70 times seven, 77 times. It's not a math problem. It's not a thing of 70 times seven, uh, that's 490. Okay, I can forgive someone 490 times. At the 491st time that they wrong me, I don't have to forgive anymore. No, it's not that. It's not that. It, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. So 77, seven times 70, um, basically you're to completely forgive somebody. No, actually you're to completely, completely forgive somebody. That's the point. You, you, you probably know the parable there. You can read the rest of it later. But um, a man owes a, a king a debt. The king brings him before him and, and he says, I can't pay it. He says, okay, you're forgiven. Go, go, go. Your, your debt's paid. And, and it's a huge debt, like way too big of a debt that you could ever pay. He goes and he finds some servant that owes him like a nickel. And he says, give me the nickel. And the guy says, I can't pay it. I don't have a nickel. So he takes him in and puts him in jail. And, and the point is, the punchline, verse 32 and 33, uh, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The point of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if, if you have truly been overwhelmed by the incredible forgiveness that God poured out on you at the cross, you will recognize that forgiveness here on earth doesn't even come close to that. God, the one who has never done anything wrong, forgives millions of wrongdoers who receive the forgiveness. We, who are fully sinners, don't even know how to forgive someone else of much smaller things on earth. Yet Ephesians 4.32 says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. We are to forgive others with the extravagance that God forgave through the death of Jesus. So then, we should probably define what forgiveness is, right? We should probably uh, figure out what forgiveness is. Based on this parable, Matthew 18, forgiveness is when someone has wronged you and you make a decision to no longer hold the debt that they owe for the wrong they committed against you. To no longer hold that debt against them. Forgiveness is sort of tied to restoration of the relationship. Um, you think of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. You had to make the sacrifice for right relationship with God to be restored. Um, forgiveness only happens when it's asked for. Forgiveness can only truly happen um, horizontally when it's asked for. Look back at Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So if someone doesn't repent for their wrongdoing, functionally, they cannot be forgiven by you. Functionally. Let's get into what that means. Don't, don't freak out on that. We often speak of forgiveness as simply letting something go within yourself to feel better. That's not what forgiveness is. That, that's not what forgiveness is. Remember, it's compared to what God does for us in Christ. God does not simply let our sin go. He doesn't just let our sin go. He grants pardon for our sin upon our forgiveness, upon our repentance and receiving of forgiveness. And when that happens, he never again holds our sin against us. Never. If somebody does you wrong and never asks you forgiveness, you're not able to forgive them because there's no repentance. God does not forgive everybody. He only forgives those who come to him for forgiveness. Those who refuse to come to him pay for their sins in hell forever. That's what they do. What that does not mean is, that does not mean you sit and hold a grudge against a person who doesn't come and ask for forgiveness. You make peace with God that you will show the love of Christ to that person, but until they repent of their wrongdoing, there is going to be a chasm in the relationship that, that just can't be repaired. That chasm wouldn't be repaired if you just let go what they did. And sometimes, even after repentance and forgiveness, there's still some consequences. Trust has to be rebuilt. You don't enable them to continue doing harm to you. There are circumstances when, of course, this would play out a little differently. Um, one of the best examples is a wife in an abusive marriage. Um, she can, through the power of the gospel, show the love of Christ to her abusive husband, but she should get out of that situation and not continue being harmed by him, and legal action should be taken against that man. 
there's a vertical and a horizontal aspect to forgiveness. Vertical, it is forgiveness that happens in your heart between, uh, between you and God. We have to always pursue this regardless of if a person repents or not. But horizontally, forgiveness and restoration of a relationship cannot truly happen unless the wrongdoer repents. So how often should you forgive someone? You should always live with vertical forgiveness toward them that always plays itself out in loving kindness toward them. But you should always understand that unless they repent for their wrongdoing, there is no restoration between the two of you that can happen no matter how much you forgive them. Each situation of forgiveness may have to apply these in different ways. And so if you're having trouble figuring out how to forgive somebody, please let me know. We can talk about that and apply this to your situation. We can figure that out. But, but this is how forgiveness works. It's got a vertical and a horizontal aspect to it. Next question. In heaven, we will be reunited with our loved ones. But what about all our loved ones who don't go to heaven? How will we deal with loved ones being in hell? This is definitely a sobering question, isn't it? Because who of us do not have family and friends that, that, that have died lost? At a funeral, everyone is always a holy saint, aren't they? You know, pe people stand up and give eulogies, and it's, they loved everybody so much, and they were just always such a good person. Even though last Christmas you were on the edge of your seat just praying they weren't going to ruin the Christmas party with their selfishness. Uh, of course, we don't stand up at a funeral and say the deceased is in hell, but we also don't preach someone into heaven if there was no evidence in their life that they knew Jesus. This question rightfully understands that not everyone goes to heaven. We very often act like that's not true, don't we? We act like the only people who go to hell are Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan, but none of the decent human beings I knew will. They'll, they'll all go to heaven. And obviously, we know there will be no sadness and sorrow in heaven, so how can this be possible? How can that be possible if I know people who are burning in hell forever? The answer to that question probably won't sit very well with you, but it's the best we can imagine from what Scripture says. Scripture doesn't speak to this too much. First, we have to remind ourselves that our view of heaven is very often not the Bible's view of heaven. Our view of heaven is usually just that it's a reunion with our deceased loved ones and a place where we have no more pain, and those things will all be there and they'll be wonderful. But Jesus is usually an afterthought in our view of heaven. We think more about seeing our grandpa than we do about seeing Jesus. The glory of Jesus is the one thing that will satisfy our soul, and we often look for smaller things. It is not a thing that heaven is where all the good people go and hell is where all the bad people go. That's not what it is. Well, technically it is. There's just no good people is the problem. Heaven is where all the people who love Jesus go. If you didn't deeply love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength here on earth, you will not enjoy heaven no matter how many of your loved ones are there. Hell is where all the people who rejected Jesus go. If you rejected Jesus on earth, God gives you exactly what you wanted for all eternity. People in hell do not regret being there. We know that from different passages in Scripture. The more and more they reject Jesus, eventually God just gives them over to that. So it's not just horrible people who end up in hell. Sometimes it's our high school best friend or our aunt. So how will we cope with that? Very often, we have such a small view of sin, don't we? We view sins like abortion is really bad, but, but the sins we think of that are little, that, that our loved ones commit, we easily overlook those. We, we look over gossip and gluttony and temper and complaining and all that stuff. Since we overlook those things, we expect that God should overlook those things, right? When we sin, well, we think they're not that big of a deal, but they are. God's holiness is a very big deal. And when we sin, we oppose his holiness no matter what the sin is. When we sin, we sin against God's holiness. That's what we do. The bigger the person we do something wrong against, the bigger the consequence. If, if you smack me in the face, I don't know what will happen, but it's probably not going to be too big. If you smack a police officer in the face, you're going to go to jail. If you smack the president in the face, you're, you're going to prison and you're not getting out. So if you smack God in the face... What is the punishment for that? What is the punishment for smacking a perfect, holy God in the face? A perfect, eternal, holy God in the face? Well, it's eternal punishment. 
So our sin is an assault against the holiness of that eternal God. Our loved ones who have died and gone to hell got what they wanted, as sad as that is. But in our sinful state here on earth, that doesn't, we, we don't see that. We, we don't see that. That doesn't sit well with us. So when we're in heaven, we will reach perfection. When we're in heaven, we will reach perfection. When we are saved, we are justified, but we're still filled with sin at that point. When we go to heaven, our sinful nature is cleansed from us completely, so we will finally see sin as a tremendously big deal that cannot be overlooked. So though we will mourn our loved ones going to hell, we will completely understand the righteousness and holiness of God, and we will know that God's justice must be carried out. Maybe we could put it like this. We will finally know how God feels to deeply love humans but have to carry out justice against them to punish their sin. We will finally know what it's like to love the sinner and hate the sin because that's what God has to do. That, that, that's what God has to do. But don't think for a second that we'll be sad in eternity that our loved ones, thinking about our loved ones in hell. No, we will finally see the glory of God. We will finally know what it is to dwell with Christ and have perfect relationship with him. Nothing will be able to take away our joy from us. We will have such high happiness in God that even the greatest bad news would not steal that from us. We often say things like, that's so bad it would make that person roll over in their grave. But if they're with Christ, nothing could make them roll over in their grave. Nothing. They know incomparable joy forever. I recognize that answer doesn't sit well with us. It doesn't. That, that we will, you know, just be able to put out of our mind that our loved ones are in hell. Let the fact that that doesn't sit well with you move us to action. Move us to action. There is only so much more time for our loved ones to receive Christ and be forgiven of their sins. There's only so much more time. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and one go unprayed for. We must move to we must be moved to pray for and preach the gospel to our loved ones because they will spend eternity in hell if they don't receive Christ. No matter how nice of a person they were, no matter how much we may have overlooked their sin, God will not. So let us relentlessly be about trying to lead them to the Savior. If the Ten Commandments tell us, thou shalt not kill... Why did God command Israel to go kill entire villages of people in the Old Testament? So various times in the Old Testament, God commands the Israelites, go into that village and kill every man, woman, and child there. He does that. He does that with Jericho. He does that in 1 Samuel with King Saul. Um, but how does that measure up with the fact that God says murder is a sin? Well, the commandment is more directed at murder and not just killing. There are positive examples of killing in the Bible. Think of capital punishment. Capital punishment is not murder. So what is sinful about murder other than the fact that somebody dies? Well, it is a human assuming the position of God and deciding who lives and who dies. It's a human getting to say, I decide if you die or live, I'm like God. So therefore, God is the only one who has the authority to say who gets to live and who gets to die. God takes the life of about 163,000 people every single day. But he has the authority to do it because he's the creator of life and he owns it. So when God tells the Israelites to go into a village and kill everybody there, God has the authority to do that. And we know that those people groups, that they're, it's not Mayberry that he's, going to, that he's going after. Like these are nations that are sacrificing their own children to gods. These are nations with rampant immorality. God uses Israel to judge these nations and destroy them. Now, probably the hardest part of that situation is that God includes in the command that they are to kill the children in these villages. And I understand that doesn't sit well with me. Theologians have tried to answer that question of, of how that works. Um, they've said things like, first, children are not innocent, that they may be precious and cute, but they're sinners, um, and sin deserves death. They've said things like, um, those kids that were killed knew the pagan culture that they lived in, and um, had they not been killed, they would have carried on the ways of their ancestors, and ultimately the pagan culture would have continued. I'm not fully satisfied with those answers, just being honest with you, but their attempts to answer a really hard question. 
that they are. Here's what I do know. First, God is good. So anything God does, he, we have to trust is being done out of his goodness. Second, God is greater than I am, so who am I to question his ways? It is arrogant for any human to look at God and say, what have you done? Scripture is clear, his ways are not our ways. But finally, God knows what it is to sacrifice his own son to show mercy. He knows what that is. He is not an evil, child-killing lunatic. He shows his mercy by giving his own son for us, not by killing other people's kids. How do you explain the existence of dinosaurs and Neanderthal man? It cannot be denied due to physical evidence, yet it appears Adam would have come after them. So let me first deal with evolution in general, and then we'll talk about Neanderthal and dinosaurs. Some Christians believe the earth is young. Some Christians believe the earth is old. Um, Christians that believe the earth um, is old believe God used the evolutionary process to create the world. They believe that the days in Genesis, days 1 through 6, are not literal days. They believe um, since time is different for God, the days must represent eras of millions of years. They will often quote that passage in 2 Peter that says a day to the Lord is a thousand years. They just leave off the second part that says a thousand years is one day. Um, I'm a Christian that believes in, in that the earth is young. I believe the earth is young. Young earth Christians believe the earth is somewhere between 6,000 to 10,000 years old. They, they believe that because we can trace the genealogies from Jesus back to Adam and kind of count the years and know how long it was. Um, we believe, young earth Christians believe, that the days in Genesis 1 are normal 24-hour days. That They're normal 24-hour days. It says there's an evening and a morning. The text of that passage gives no indication that it should be read as anything other than normal days. This t time isn't different for God. He doesn't exist in time. So um, he, he exists outside of it. That's, that's what Second Peter's saying. Time doesn't matter to God. It's not like he's you know, higher up and the earth rotates a little faster for him. And so, so time is different. It's not like that. No, he, he doesn't, he's not measured by time. Science and faith are not at odds with each other. But you have to put science in its proper place. Science does not get authority over Scripture. When science and Scripture disagree, science has to bow to Scripture, not the other way around. We don't reinterpret Scripture to make it fit with, with a scientific discovery. So first, here is the thing about science. Science is very good and very trustworthy. However, we know science changes a lot. And ultimately, everything we know scientifically is based upon our limited knowledge of things. COVID kind of showed us what that's like. Um, the reason everyone thought scientists and doctors were morons during COVID is because they were figuring it out as they went along. They didn't have a book to go to that said, this is how everything goes in COVID. No, as new data became available, they had to reinterpret their findings to understand it. That's how science works. So scientists believe the Earth is billions of years old based on their own scientific theories that they came up with. Two specific ones, carbon dating. Um, they, they test the carbon within a fossil and it gives, um, it gives them an estimate of how old that fossil is. And then the fossil layer. So in the ground, you've probably seen diagrams, there's layers of fossils and they say this one is this age and this one is thousands of years later and this one's millions of years later and they work its way up. I think there's a biblical explanation for both of these. First of all, Carbon dating shows us, and, and the expansion of the universe, how the universe is stretched out. The universe appears old. It appears like it's been here for millions of years. But how old was Adam when he was created? Well, I mean, he was a day old when he, you know, took his first breath. But how old was he functionally? How old was he functionally? You know, like, God didn't create Adam as a newborn baby in the garden to kind of figure himself out. Like, like he didn't do that. He was a full-grown man when he was created. He was one day old, but he had the appearance of a 35-year-old, right? If God did that with man, why would the entire universe not appear the exact same way? And then fossils are layered in the earth. We find layers of fossils on the ground, don't we? We find fossils of animals on the top of mountains that don't belong there. Like, like animals that should not be on the top of Mount Everest are up there on the top of Mount Everest. Therefore, it must have taken a long time to end up like that, right? 
Actually, this is exactly what I would expect to happen worldwide if there was a flood that happened on the entire earth for 40 days. Things are going to be floating around all over the place. The ground's going to get all washed around in every direction, and you're going to have this appearance of things that looks crazy, right? So let's talk about Neanderthal and dinosaurs. Neanderthal first. Essentially, it's believed that there were some links between primates and humans. So primates over millions of years slowly, gradually changed, and we got the human race, right? Again, we're basing this off our own human theories trying to figure it out, supposedly millions of years later. There are two types of evolution. When you talk about evolution, there's microevolution. So um, you, you don't just have one dog. You have like all kinds of different types of dogs, right? You got Labradors, you've got Golden Retrievers, you've got Poodles, you've got Great Danes. You get all these different kinds of dogs. They're all dogs, but they're very different kinds of dogs. And then you have what's called macroevolution. This is the th idea of one species changing into another over time. Um, we know microevolution happens. I, I could probably take a poll, and we've probably got, I don't know, 13 different types of dogs owned by all of y'all in here, right? All kinds of different animals. But there's very little hard evidence, from what I understand, to show tons of direct links from one species to another. There, there's very little of that. Biblically, macroevolution does not work. The fact that, you know, a primate could, over time, have different little changes and get smarter and grow and eventually become the human race. It requires what's called survival of the fittest. So each, each you know, different generation of species has to die and improve, right? It requires death. The problem is, according to Scripture, there was no death in the world prior to sin entering the world with Adam and Eve. There was no death. Nothing died. Death is the result of sin. If there's no sin, death can't be happening. This is one of those moments where there is such a contrast in what science says and what the Bible says, I have to draw the line and say science is wrong because Scripture says death happens when sin comes. Nothing can die before that. Usually science and faith are friends, but faith gets the trump card here in some circumstances. What about dinosaurs? Dinosaurs. I believe they lived with humans. I believe they lived with humans. Again, the fossil record appears as it does because of the flood. The Bible mentions dinosaurs. Look at Job chapter 40. Job chapter 40 in your Bible. Job 40, um, verse 15 through 18. Behold, behemoth which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his, is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. Okay, your, your footnotes in your Bible may have one next to behemoth that says this is a hippopotamus. But I want us to take a look at the details on that creature. Look at verse 17. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. How big is a cedar tree? Is it big? They're pretty big. How big is the tail of a hippopotamus? It's like a rope, right? It's not a cedar. It's not a cedar. This is not a hippopotamus. This is something else. Um, scripture repetitively, repeatedly mentions a sea monster called Leviathan. I wonder where the Bible writers came up with a sea creature like this. What happened to the dinosaurs, though? I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps they mutated down to just being lizards, or, 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 or perhaps they, they were on the ark with Noah. They had to be because, the, you know, that's how Scripture seems to present it. Um, but perhaps the world after the flood was different in climate and living conditions, than they, than, and they just died out because of that. Why are they not mentioned living with humans in writings? Because the word dinosaur is not invented until the 1800s. So, of course, they're not going to be in the Bible because the word didn't exist yet. Prior to that, they would have been called by a different name. I don't know what that name was, but, but maybe it was Behemoth and Leviathan. But the point is, dinosaur, the word, didn't exist till the 1800s, and so they would have been called by something else, so you're not going to find them in old writings with human beings because the word didn't exist. Uh, th there's a lot about dinosaurs in the ark in Kentucky. Join us for the trip. We're, we're still getting details together for that, but, but you'll learn a lot about dinosaurs on that trip. 
Um, all right, I think we got three questions left, so I'm going to try to truck through them. we got ten minutes. How should we as Christians think about and deal with climate change? You hear a lot about this today. Um, it, it is a subject I'm not very familiar with outside of knowing the biblical view of caring for the earth, which we'll get to in a minute. Took a meteorology class in college. I mean, it was my science credit. I had to get a science credit, and that's what was available the semester I needed it. Um, did terrible in the class. I technically failed it, but my professor showed me mercy. Um, he said, hey, I saw that you were working hard, so I'll give you a D instead of an F so, this, you know, so that you can not have to take another science class. Um, I remember my professor saying that the people who propagate climate change and global warming for political purpose understand nothing about how meteorology works. And so I'm actually Facebook friends with him, so I reached out to him and I asked him, hey, could you explain to me how the, what, what parts of climate change are legitimate science and what parts are just propaganda bogus? Like, could you clear that up for me? And I expected him to just send me like a paragraph. He sent me a four-page document. So I'm like, thank you so much. Um, so let me explain the issue first from, from what he told me and then give you a biblical perspective on it. My professor said... The fact is that scientific data is legitimate, however, often that data is taken and used to help a narrative, a, a, some kind of narrative. Where do you hear about climate change? Well, you hear it from politicians wanting your vote, and you hear it from news outlets wanting your viewership to make money off of advertisements. They have an agenda with it. Scientific data is ever-changing. Scientists, uh, as I said, science is always changing, so they're always interpreting new data. Um, but, but how much of the climate change issue is legitimate scientifically? Let me just read you a direct quote from what my professor said. Climate changes have been occurring since the creation of the Earth. That is a fact of science. Our modern daily weather and contemporary climate patterns are quite unlike many, many moons ago. Even in the scientific community, there is no tangible, valid debate about the reality of climate change. Rather, for years, the debate has been centered on what is causing it. Is it an act of nature, just part of the natural cycle, or something responsive to the human life? We're living in a fascinating time because we are witnessing the science come together to show strong support and evidence that humans are certainly playing a role in modern climate change. This collective finding continues to repeat itself in the vast peer-reviewed literature, which is not at all tailored to appease or antagonize a political party, large news agency, or religious base. It is repetitive findings that keep showing up despite your affiliation that is worth paying attention to. It's called climate change, um, not global warming, because on average, the climates of the world are warming as time progresses, but not everywhere at the same time. There are some locations that are remaining the same. There are some that are getting cooler. On average, the climates, though, are getting warmer. So that is the legitimacy of the discussion, to take it out of the political view and just look at it scientifically. So how should Christians think about the issue? So when I was like 10, I was riding with my grandfather in his car, in his Jeep, and um, he had like a Coke from Burger King, took a sip of it, shook it around, you know, the ice is in there, there's no drink. He rolls down the window and just chucks it out the window. And 10-year-old me is like, what are you doing? You just littered. And he's like, yeah, I got to do that so, that so the people in jail have something to do. And I said, what? And he's like, yeah, those prisoners in jail, they're going to sit in those tiny rooms and be sad all the time. So I'm, I throw stuff out the window so they have to come out and get to do something. He was legitimate in this, in this view. I, was like, I didn't understand it at all, but don't do that. Don't do that. As it comes to caring for the earth, don't do that. God has given a very clear direction on caring for the earth. Genesis 1:28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2:15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The fact is, God gave Adam the responsibility to care for creation. Adam was tasked with taking care and ruling over the creation God made. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now the fact is, because of sin, creation is cursed. So bad things happen like climate changes. Mankind can truly cause great harm to the creation God made. So we're to be stewards of what God made. That means we take care of God's earth. The earth belongs to the Lord. 
We don't throw garbage on the highway. We, we, we play our part to leave the earth in better shape than, than for, for the next generation. There is the, just the general fact that there's some things we can't help but harm the earth with. For example, it doesn't matter if you use a gas power or electric car because you're using resources from the earth in both cases. All right, I'm from Kentucky. Coal mining's big up there. Coal is what makes electricity. There's people up there trying to shut down coal mines because it harms the earth. So we don't go insane with this. We don't go insane with it. One time I was camping with some friends, and, um, and we were building the fire, and I had like a, a water bottle, and it was empty, so I just threw it in the fire because, you know, I'm going to get rid of it. And this one guy in the group of like six people, like, started yelling at me, what are you doing? You're going to kill us. And, and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, that's going to put off fumes, and it's going to go into our nose, and we're all going to die. And I'm like, bro, I... I'm pretty sure a water bottle is not going to kill us all. I'm pretty sure that's not going to cause the the issue. Um, But we generally seek to care for the earth God made. We don't put the earth in front of caring for human life. It is absolutely horrendous um, when somebody cares more about saving the sea turtles than saving the unborn. But generally speaking, care for the earth. But isn't the earth just going to burn up? Like, we're going to fly away from this place. Why worry about it? That's where you're mistaken. We are not going to fly away from this place forever. There is a time between death and the second coming where we go off to heaven, but when Jesus returns, he will call us into the clouds, and we will live on earth forever. The new heavens and the new earth, that's how Revelation describes it. It's the debate over does God destroy the one and create another earth? Um, I believe we live on this earth but restored to its former glory. I believe what happened with Jesus at his resurrection will happen to the entire universe. Romans 8.21, the creation itself will be set free from this bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I picture this more like, because um, the Bible does talk about the earth being burned up. I picture it more like when a farmer burns off a field. He's burning it off to make it new to be able to use it again, Right? That's what God's going to do. He's going to burn off the earth is what, is what I understand when you bring together all the passages of Scripture. The reality is heaven will be brought down to this earth. If that's the case, we must as Christians care for the earth and the climate because it's our forever home. It's our forever home. Um, I have two more questions. One of them is long. One of them is short. It's two minutes till the end. Do you want me to keep going or you want me to wait till next week? Keep going. Let's keep going. All right. Are people born homosexual or is it a choice? I saved one of the controversial ones for the last. Um, the last one is not controversial, but this one may be. Um, this is technically two questions, so we're going to deal with both of them. Um, are people born homosexual? Yes and no. Is it a choice? Yes and no. So let's deal with both of those. Are people born homosexual? This is what most people who are homosexual say. They were born that way. It is very insulting to them to tell them it's a choice. It comes off that we are assuming they're actually attracted to the opposite sex. They're just choosing to be attracted to the same sex. But if we honestly think about that, that doesn't make any sense. Let's just say the tables were turned and it was sinful to be heterosexual. All right, make the choice to stop being attracted to the opposite sex. You can't do it. It's actually repulsive to you. We need to first understand that homosexuals are actually attracted to the same sex. They really do have those feelings. They, are, they aren't daily choosing to be attracted to the same sex. They're actually attracted to them. So are they born that way? Well, we have to differentiate here. Being born sinful and God creating someone sinful is not the same thing. All right, being born sinful and God creating someone sinful is not the same thing. God doesn't create anyone homosexual. However, in a sense, we are born sinners, and our sin manifests itself in different ways. What do I mean by that? We believe in original sin. Original sin says we were all born sinners. Adam and Eve were not born sinners, but they sinned, and since then, every one of their descendants, except for Jesus, has been born a sinner completely with a sin nature. It is not just that you do some bad things. You're a sinner through and through. Every fiber of your body is corrupted by sin. It's why you will die one day. 
It's why nice people get cancer. It's why my knee hurts right now. It's why um, after a really busy couple weeks, I'm absolutely exhausted. I can't go on forever without rest because we are sinners. Everyone is born corrupted by a sin nature. And that sin nature manifests itself in every sinner in all kinds of different ways. For some people, that's homosexuality. I don't have an explanation why it manifests in them in that way, but it does. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a thing of something that happened to them in their life. You can certainly point to examples where maybe that was the case, but that's not the case with every one of them. Um, sometimes they had a completely normal life, normal family, everything was normal, but they come out as gay. So in that sense, homosexuals are born homosexual because they're born with a sin nature. So is it a choice? Again, yes and no. It's not a choice in the sense that homosexuals are actively choosing to be attracted to the, to the same sex when they're actually attracted to the opposite sex. How is it a choice? It's a choice when a homosexual hears what God says to be true and refuses to repent. That's when it's a choice, when they choose to not repent, when they choose rather to embrace their homosexuality even more. It is a choice when a homosexual decides, I don't care what God says, I'm going to be who I am. Now, let me make clear what that might mean for a homosexual. Repenting of homosexuality will not suddenly make a homosexual straight. It won't. Um, for a homosexual, repentance may mean forsaking any desire for romantic love for the rest of their life. Some people who repent of their homosexuality, God does grant the desire for the opposite sex. Um, there's examples of that in some people that are writing books today. Um, check out Rosaria Butterfield and Jackie Hill Perry. Um, but some people who repent of their homosexuality will continue to struggle with same-sex attraction for the rest of their life, for the rest of their lives. The same as a person who repents of any other sin, a, a temper, a drinking problem, whatever. They will continue to struggle with it. Faithfulness to Jesus will mean not acting on their sinful desires for the rest of their lives. Recognize that sacrifice. That may mean they have to willingly choose a life of singleness for the rest of their lives to be faithful to Jesus. I think they'll be more satisfied, but recognize the sacrifice they have to make. Repentance does not instantly mean they're no longer gay. It means they're now wrestling with their homosexuality rather than embracing it. The greatest need of a homosexual is not to be heterosexual, it's to be holy. It's to be holy. To be committed to Christ in everything he says. The fact is, homosexuals are born with a sin nature just like heterosexuals are. If a homosexual or any other sinner ever says, I was born that way, we can say, you're right. That's why Jesus says you have to be born again. You have to be born again. We're all sinners born with, with that nature. We have to be born again by the Spirit of God to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is why people should rightfully be concerned about what has been called conversion therapy. Conversion therapy, it's where people ship their kids that struggle with homosexuality off to some camp to brainwash the homosexuality out of them. It's neither conversion nor is it therapy. Homosexuals need conversion, but you can't force it at a camp. Conversion is a supernatural act of God. The gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit reveals Christ, and the sinner comes running and gives new birth. This is why, this is what every heterosexual and every homosexual needs, because we're all born with a sin nature. You are no better off than God, before God than a homosexual if you're not converted. If you want to read more about that, I'd encourage you to check out a book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? by Kevin D. Young. It's a very good book on that topic, very easy read. Final question, and this one's a little shorter. I know I commit the same sins daily. I pray for God's help while these, with these, but I still do it. Will God eventually give up on me or turn his back? We would assume that would, that, that would be the case, wouldn't it? Because that's what we're like. Eventually, if someone um, runs us through the mud enough times, we finally just say, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. Those little nitwits had enough chances. I'm done with them. That's what we say. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Much of the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus being the great high priest. You remember the high priest? He would go and make a sacrifice to make forgiveness for your, 
sins. Um, the difference is their sacrifice only lasted a year. Jesus never runs out. It never runs out. You have no sin, past, present, or future, that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. None. Um, when, when, we, when Jesus died, Scripture says that God took him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, that we might become the righteousness of God. There is no amount of times you could sin and make God no longer love you and not forgive you. It, would, it wouldn't be much of a redemption if you could lose it, would it? With this question... What this question is describing is very much the story of the Christian life. It's a constant struggle. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm struggling more and more with who I was yesterday. The fact that you wrestle with your sin, though, is a sign that you're living a life of repentance. The person who does not live a life of repentance never struggles with their sin. They just live in them and, and don't struggle with them at all. But if you're a believer in Christ... If you've been saved by his sacrifice on the cross, God will never turn his back on you ever. We know that because of what happened at the death of Jesus. What happened at the death of Jesus? Jesus is hanging there, and through every little breath, he says, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, God turned his back on Jesus so that you never have to have him turn his back on you. God gave Jesus what you deserved, so he is not going to give you what you now deserve. He's given it to Jesus. The debt is already paid. The judgment is already given. The ransom is taken care of. This is the glorious news of the gospel because Jesus died in your place. Never, ever, 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 ever again will God turn his back on you. Ever. The curtain of the temple was torn when Jesus died, demonstrating that forever you have access to God, and that will never go away. And so we praise the Lord that, no, he will never again turn his back on us because he did it to Jesus in our place. These have been some really good questions, and it was a joy to answer them. I hope this showed you there are answers to your questions. You don't have to be afraid to ask. If I wasn't clear on something or if you want some more info on something we talked about, please follow up with me. Um, if you have other questions, I'm always up to talk about these kind of things. Um, uh, it's one of my favorite things in ministry when someone asks a question and wants to talk about things like this. So please bring your questions and let's talk about them. Um, let's pray together, then we're going to go eat some soup. Father, I thank you for sustaining me through this hour and eight minutes. Um, Lord, I, I, I was thinking I've talked more today than... Um, in, in just my two sermons alone, that I usually talk in an entire day to other people. <laughs> um, Lord, but, but I thank you for sustaining me. I pray for us. I pray that we will search your scriptures for answers to our questions always. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to um, the answers to those questions, even if we don't like them. Father, be with us. Go with us now to fellowship. I pray for this food. I thank you for it. I thank you for all those who have prepared soup. And I pray that, Lord, you would give us good fellowship as we eat of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's head down.